This is The Guardian. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers, it's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today. What if there was a machine that could see disease years before any doctor? We ran our model on that mammogram and they found like very early cancer. Listen to Black Box, a new podcast series from The Guardian. Seven stories about AI and us. Coming soon. It's been a pretty terrible and tawdry political week for most of us, but that inveterate self-publicist Lee Anderson is presumably thrilled to have been at the centre of the news for at least five days. I will not back down. I'm sticking by my words and there's no apology coming from my lips. In response to this very ugly Islamophobic outburst about what Anderson calls Islamists and the Mayor of London, Rishi Sunak has not really seemed to get a grip of the issue. There's a difference between wrong and Islamophobic. Were they Islamophobic? Well, I think the the most important thing is that the words were wrong. They were ill-judged. They were unacceptable. There's a very big question at the heart of this story. What does it tell us about the state of the Conservative Party and where it might be going next? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week, the UK, for The Guardian. Joining me today is Gavin Barwell, the Conservative peer and the former Number 10 Chief of Staff. Hello, Gavin. Afternoon, John. Right. uh, We are going to talk about Lee Anderson, um, what he said, the fallout from it, and what that tells us about where the Conservative Party is going. Let's begin at the beginning. I mean, a lot... We've heard a lot in the last five or six days, but the story, it seems, has gone precisely nowhere. <laughs> let's, hit, let's hear where all this started on Where Else? GB News. And I don't actually believe that these Islamists have got control of our country, but what I do believe is they've got control of Khan and they've got control of London, and they've got control of Storm as well. And again, this stems with Khan. He's, 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 he's actually given our, given our capital city away to his mates, On Monday, uh, we got a response from Rishi Sunak, which went like this. Well, I've been very clear that what Lee said was wrong, it was unacceptable, and that's why we suspended the whip. And it's important that everybody, but particularly elected politicians, are careful with their words and and do not inflame tensions. But there's a difference between wrong and Islamophobic. Were they Islamophobic? Well, I think the the most important thing is that the words were wrong. They were ill-judged. They were unacceptable. And that's what I believe. And that's why the whip has been suspended. And I think think everyone can see that tensions are already running high. And what I want to do, I think what the country wants to see, is the heat taken out of this debate. And I think that's the right thing to do. Gavin, I wonder how you have uh, felt, really, uh, watching this story unfold, listening to, reading about Lee Anderson's comments, and what you make of the way he's behaved and the party's handling of it. Just so, give me a brief flavour of that, and then we'll go into more detail. So, I was I was disgusted with his original remarks. I mean, I think it's really important to make this point that there is, of course, a legitimate debate, John, about some of the extremism we see on the edges of the protest that are taking place, 
and how the police are policing those protests and dealing with that and the threats that MPs have faced. But he clearly went way beyond that and tried to suggest that the mayor of London is controlled by Islamists, which is a despicable slur. And, you know, tried to imply that all of the people in this process were Islamists. And he clearly, in doing that, is trying to spread fear and hatred of Muslims. And it took a little bit longer than I would have liked, but the prime minister got to the right point, which is that somebody with those views should not be allowed to be in receipt of the whip of a centre-right party. So I was pleased to see he eventually got there. I suspect we're going to come on in a second to have a conversation about the extreme difficulty they then seem to get themselves into explaining why they'd taken that decision. Yeah, yeah. But it sounds like you don't have that difficulty. So I can ask you point blank. Are, were these comments, are these comments Islamophobic? So I think they are. Okay. I understand that that is a word that some people have a problem with about what it, what does it mean exactly. So I think it would have been perfectly reasonable if for a government is to say, I don't want to use that word, but John, yes, these comments were designed to spread fear and hatred of Muslims. Okay, and that's okay. and yes, that would have that been a good was, enough answer, right? That would have been, that would be more answer. than we've got so far. Yeah. I mean, a more direct question is, are they racist comments? Uh, I, I think they're directed against uh, a religion rather than a race, but they're prejudiced. They're, they're, it's the same thing, right? It's a, they're prejudiced comments. And also really importantly, they're, they're comments that are designed to sow division in our society. And I, I always go back to what prime ministers say on day one when they're outside the door on the first occasion, right? And Rishi Sunak gave what I thought was quite a good speech. And he said he wanted to unite the country. If you want to unite the country, you can't have people with this kind of language, this kind of views in your party. Full stop. I wonder, why is it that the the line on this for days is not moved? All we've heard from senior conservatives is this word wrong? And when they're asked, well, why is it wrong? Which is a perfectly reasonable question to ask. They don't have an answer. They keep going round and round it in circles. So why why is there an issue with saying, as you did, quite bluntly, yes, these comments are Islamophobic, and you said yourself designed to sow division. Um, I think you said you can argue about definitions of racism, but to all intents and purposes, these are racist comments. Why won't anyone at the top of the Conservative Party say that? I don't know whether they were worried that whatever answer they gave would open up uh, questions about other people and whether yes. other people had said things yes, that yes. You know, where do you draw the where you draw in the line, as it were, of what is a is an offence that lose the whip, or whether there were people that thought trying to straddle the middle of this row had some electoral dividend. I don't think that's true, but maybe some people thought that. Or there is whether, no middle though. Is there's no I middle? I don't think there, really, I don't think there? there is right, but. I can tell you from some of the Conservative MPs that I've spoken to, they've said they've had quite a lot of emails in from people supportive of what he said. But I suspect a lot of those emails were supportive of him speaking bluntly about concerns about the protests, right? So that some of what he said, I think is perfectly legitimate comment. He then crossed a line. And it's a, right. to me, it's a clear line. But maybe, maybe that kind of pushback that Number 10 had had from some other people in the party made them nervous. Okay. I mean, that sort of chimes with my tentative explanation of why uh, senior conservatives won't say anything nearly as clear-cut as they should. One obvious reason is because if they said these comments are racist and Islamophobic, that would open the way to Suella Braverman, the former Home Secretary, being open to the same accusation. As we both know, um, she has talked very recently in in the Daily Telegraph, Islamists are now in charge of Britain, in fact, was the way that article was presented. There's a jitteriness because there are more Tory MPs with these views, perhaps not masses, but enough that it worries them. And then also there's this new sort of right-wing coalition of forces that makes a hell of a lot of noise, which I think scares the the people at the top of the Conservative Party. GB News, the Mail and the Telegraph at their most shrill. 
and now Reform UK, who are causing lots of trouble for the Conservative Party from the outside. And taken together, they sort of paralyse the leadership. Well, they shouldn't allow it to paralyse them. I mean, look, I think, you know, I think you've probably guessed my views on Suella Braverman. I I thought that article was spectacularly (laughs) ill-judged. But it is important to say there is a distinction between what Anderson said and what Braverman said, which is that Anderson personalised it about the Mayor of London in a completely unacceptable way. So... You, you say that, but Islamists are, are now in charge of Britain. That's the sort of stuff 15, 20 years ago we only heard from people like Nick Griffin, the leader of the British National Party. That's that's right, isn't it? Yeah, I would not, I'm not defending that language. I would never use it. I suppose uh, you're, you're kind of pushing me into a position of trying to explain why someone might defend that language. So I suppose, right. and I don't want to do that, but I suppose what she would say is that she was trying to make a point that actually what happened in Parliament was changed because of MPs feeling threatened by extremists. And that is a very serious thing. And I I agree with her about that. But I don't think that point justifies the language she used in the article. Yeah, yeah. Why not, well, why not just say that is the obvious response. Yeah, but because, yeah. because we, we live, I'm afraid, in a world where some of our politicians want always to use the most punchy language to gather attention. Um, and actually, I think responsible centrist politics, whether the centre-left or the centre-right, is about making these points in ways that doesn't make the situation worse. I mean, just to make this clear, I'm not asking you these questions and sort of engaging in this conversation on the on the basis that the left and the centre-left and the Labour Party are blamelessly here. The Labour Party is riddled with all sorts of prejudices. It's a sort of creature of wider society, and it also has some of its own prejudices. There clearly is, was, an issue about anti-Semitism. So um, this is not a sort of people in glass houses throwing stones scenario. I think that has to be acknowledged. But this story that we're talking about is about the Conservative Party. Uh, Saeed Avasi, Baroness Avasi, as you know, uh, has been um, speaking out about this a lot. She recently told Sky News, I think this is this week, it's disturbing that in the current Conservative Party, not only is there a hierarchy of racism, but anti-Muslim racism is being used as an electoral campaign tool. So in other words, these aren't just noises off. There is an awful political logic behind them. What do you make of that? I'm not sure if I would go that far. Um, I don't think that the the party in terms of CCHQ and then the general election strategy is doing that. But I think that she was absolutely right about what she said, both in terms of you've got a real problem if you can't put a name to a thing. You know, if you say something's wrong and then you can't tell people what was wrong about it, how are you ever going to get on top of the problem? And I think that she was also right in what she said about a hierarchy of racism in that I'm afraid that it feels to me in this country that prejudice against Muslims or against Islam is not treated with the same seriousness as some other forms of prejudice that we see in our society. You mentioned a moment ago this this sort of approved line that you just say it's wrong and don't say anything else and how Michael Tomlinson, um, who uh, is a government minister, had got into such trouble. It's worth hearing what happened when he was interviewed by Nick Ferrari <laughs> on LBC. Was it Islamophobic? What he said was wrong, and robust action was taken, and the whip was removed within 24 hours. Minister, was it Islamophobic? Uh, Nick, it was wrong. Minister, I'm going to... And I'm never... I'm normally a very polite man. I'm actually going to effectively put the fact... I'll ask you now, for the third time... I've asked you six times why it was necessary. For the third time, was it Islamophobic? Uh, Nick, it was wrong. I'll have to curtail the interview there. I'm grateful for your time, but enough already. Michael Tomlinson is the Minister of State for Illegal Migration, unable to answer a question. Okay, we laughed as I introduced that clip. I mean, you know, no one's blameless here, are they? But at the same time, I guess part of you will feel for him. He's been given a line to stick to, and it's just impossible. You look ludicrous. What's that like? Yeah, so, I mean, anyone who's been a minister has been put in that situation. 
Um, I think the most skillful politicians find a way of using their own language that doesn't break the line completely open, but doesn't follow it, right? I, f- I felt for him, but the people we should be really angry with are the people that sent him out with such a ludicrous position to defend. You know, if you think back to Boris Johnson and ultimately why so many of his ministers turned against him, it was because they got sick of being sent out for the morning media round and told to say things which very quickly turned out to be not true. Um, a good prime minister leads from the front and they tend to react to things very, very quickly. You know, they know where their mind is and what, what they should say. And a good prime minister very rarely looks nervous and scared. And I think Rishi Sunak looks nervous and scared in the midst of all this. And I think I know why. Tuesday's headline on the Daily Express said, get him back about Lee Anderson. There's a lot of noise being made, as I mentioned earlier, in that sort of coalition of forces about the idea that Lee Anderson somehow has been unjustly treated. And then there are Conservative MPs who are apparently saying that they've had lots and lots of constituents writing to them. You mentioned this a moment ago in support of him, making sympathetic noises. Peter Gibson, the MP for Darlington. Jill Mortimer, the MP for Hartlepool. Sarah Dines, the MP for Derby Dales. Do you think Sunak feels that he's in an impossible situation and therefore it makes him feel extremely anxious? So I think he definitely is in an impossible situation, not just on this issue, but more generally in terms of the inheritance that he had when he became prime minister. I think he probably does feel that. The thing I would say to him is, you know, just do the right thing. Sometimes sometimes in life you can't win electorally and it's more important just to do the right thing. And I think he made the right decision when he took the whip away from Lee Anderson and he should he should stick by that decision. You know the job of politicians, they've got to try and hold their electoral coalition together. So he can absolutely, in defending the decision he took, say these are the things Lee said that I think he had a point and we need to address. This is the line that he crossed. This is where I part company from him. And I'm not going to allow people in my party to use that kind of language. And uh, you're, you're much better if you're in a strong position like that, setting out why you've done something and defending it, than constantly trying to work out where the center gravity in the party is and where you therefore want to position yourself. I mentioned a moment ago, in the context of this sort of range of very noisy forces on the political right, which makes Sunak and the people around him nervous, one of the key ones, obviously, is Reform UK. This uh, successor to uh, UKIP and the so-called Brexit Party, which Nigel Farage is very centrally involved. That, as we both know, there's a lot of speculation about the idea that Lee Anderson might throw in his lot with Reform UK, become Reform UK's first MP, and then one assumes stand for election in Ashfield as a Reform UK candidate. Now, in its own awful way, this would be perfect branding for Reform UK, wouldn't it? They'd be able to say, well, we've got our first MP because the Liberal establishment can't cope with the truth. I can imagine them saying that. How how big an issue do you think that is? And uh, how jittery would it make the Tory leadership if it happened? Yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously going to be very unhelpful to them. If you look at the situation today compared with six months ago, Sunak is now facing a kind of pincer attack. He's losing some votes to Labour in the middle and he's using votes on the right to reform. And strategically... That makes his job really difficult because what? Do you, which group do you chase after? You go after one, you just lose more on the other side. So it would be very unhelpful in the same way that what Carswell and Rexless did in the 2010-2015 When they defected to UKIP. Yeah, yep. that, would, that made David Cameron's job much more difficult. But ultimately, Sunat's got to think about where the overall centre ground of British politics is. And he's also got to think about just in, as a matter of principle, what's the right thing to do? And if the price of holding up some basic standards about what kind of party the Conservative Party is, is that Anderson ends up in reform. So be it. 
That implies that he might have more sort of moral fibre and backbone, Sunak, I mean, than he's actually demonstrated so far. I mean, that arguably that's quite a generous reading of Rishi Sunak. Well, I, I'm, I say so be it in terms of my view. I hope that's his view as well, right? I think that, and I, I, I don't think ultimately the Conservative Party chasing after reform is going to be a route for it to win the election. I don't think that's going to work for it electorally. That's what we'll talk about now in terms of not just the next election, but the long-term future of the party. You and I both know, and with the caveat that the Labour Party has its own history of racism and bigotry of various kinds, of course it does. But there has long been a xenophobic racist strand within conservatism. The most obvious example in in conservative history, certainly post-war, is Enoch Powell's infamous Rivers of Blood speech in Birmingham in 1968, which got him sacked from the shadow cabinet by Ted Heath. Now, you can draw a point of contrast there and say that now... Those sorts of views are running rampant across the USA and Europe. We, we sort of broadly group them under the banner of right-wing populism. They're also running rampant in the UK. And it seems very often that the conservative leadership indulges and encourages them. And the result is that this new sort of hard-right Tory coalition is becoming increasingly organised and vocal. This is not just about Lee Anderson, in other words, right? We both know that quite soon there was likely to be a Tory leadership election. So Ella Braverman, for example, might throw a hat in. This faction... This loose grouping will make a lot of noise. I wonder, do you worry about your party, therefore, slipping away from your sort of politics decisively? Well, I think it's already slipped away quite a bit. um, And I worry that it might well (laughs) slip away quite a bit more after the election. Um, Yeah, from my point of view, if you view it ideologically from where I am in the Tory party, Sunak is an improvement on Truss and Johnson. But it's not back to the Tory party that I joined or the Tory party that I campaigned for during the time that I was a Member of Parliament, and I, I definitely worry that it will go further in that direction after the election. I think if you look at Labour in 1979, the Conservatives in 97, Labour in 2010, generally parties go in the wrong direction initially after they lose. And there are two sort of questions or sets of questions bound up in this. There's a sort of moral question about the ugly aspects of this sort of hard right politics. Because when somebody like Lee Anderson says those sorts of things, clearly they're not just issues about language. They're very sort of vivid, awful, visceral issues for Muslim people. You know, when I hear that, I picture people feeling they've got a license to attack Muslim women in the street and put dog dirt through their letterboxes and all the things that we know happen, right? So there's a question for the Conservative Party there about whether it wants to be aligned with any of that, which I think is a very serious question. You're nodding, so I know you do. I had had a friend of mine um, from university who's a a senior doctor in the NHS who's a Muslim who said to me that he wouldn't feel safe going to Parliament anymore. What, very recently, you said? Yeah. In the light of these comments that we've been talking about. God. So that tells okay. you the real world effect of the language that people use. It's not. Yeah, yeah. It's a serious thing. There's another question about whether Muslim people would feel comfortable now thinking about going into a career in politics, whether locally or nationally. And that's a really big issue. It's a huge issue. You're, you're right. You made a really important point earlier on that this is not just a British phenomenon. We're seeing this kind of politics in nearly every advanced economy around the world, in Europe, in in North America too. And so what you've got to do, I think, if you're on the centre-right, is work out what are the legitimate grievances that the populist right are feeding off that you then need to address and where are you not prepared to go and where are you going to draw a line, right? So I would say, for example, if you take the issue of migration, which sits underneath all of this, we're an ageing society, we're going to need more migration, but the images of people turning up on the south coast of the country and just being able to walk into the country with anyone doing anything about it, they are quite toxic politically. So whether it's a Labour government or a Conservative government after the election, the government needs to get control of the question of illegal migration. And if you do that, I think it opens up the political space to have a perfectly sensible conversation with the public about 
legal migration. Okay, so there's the last the last question here, which is very important. People have said to me that they feel the sort of pushback, the fight back from conservatives like you is too muted and too quiet. And therefore, when this leadership election, this great watershed moment comes along, you won't be able to ensure the change in conservative politics that you want. That's a real fear and on a lot of people's part. So I, it's a fear that I share about some of my colleagues. I mean, I don't want to just sit here and defend myself, but uh, I immediately, as soon as I saw these Anderson comments, referred to them as despicable on Twitter and said he should lose the wit. I mean, I was pretty robust about it. I upset some of my former colleagues by being robust on these occasions. Um, but doesn't I, your side need to be as organised as the as the populist hard right side within the Conservative Party? Yeah, look, I think at the moment, understandably, what a lot of Conservative moderates are, are trying to do is try and help the Prime Minister deal with the inheritance he's had from Truss and Johnson. So they don't want to rot the boat. But after the election, there is going to be a battle for the soul of the party, and we need to robustly stand up for the vision of Conservatism that we have. Thank you, Gavin, for being clear and robust in a way some of your Conservative colleagues perhaps have not been (laughs) over the last few days. Thanks very much. Okay, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we'll be talking about Islamophobia and how wide and deep it runs, not least inside the Conservative Party, with Mick Dadversi from the Muslim Council of Britain. And then it would just occur to me that, oh, he's, he's not here anymore. Like, I was crushed. What happens when an AI corporation kills your boyfriend? Listen to Black Box, a new podcast series from The Guardian. Seven stories about AI and us. Coming soon. Welcome back. We've just been talking about Lee Anderson and the general mess in Westminster around Islamophobia and the question of where the Tory party is or isn't going. The whole mess of culture wars, perhaps, that swirl around politics at the moment. But the issues that have been very prominent in the last five or six days have obviously been around for a very long time. And I wanted to speak to someone who has been dealing for a very long time with Islamophobia in public life. Mick Dadversi is from the Muslim Council of Britain, and he joins me now. Hi, Mick Dad. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Mick, Dad, from your perspective, I wonder how bad, how wide, how deep you feel Islamophobia is in Britain at the moment and in sort of politics and what people call public life specifically. Islamophobia as a type of racism affects different parts of public life. And we've seen this, right? We've seen it at interpersonal level, people having really quite problematic views about Muslims. It's not just a minority of five odd percent. It's like 20 or 30% of the population who have these views that Islam is a threat to the British way of life or uh, that people live in no-go areas, these conspiracy theories that they've got a hold of a large section of population. And then there's hate crime on the street. You know, we again, the number of hate crimes that we've seen have trebled over the last few months. And then we see more structural and institutional problems. The fact that it's hard to get a job, it's hard to get a flat, it's hard to to get even insurance. It costs more if your name is Muhammad, according to a BBC piece of uh, research. So, you know, it's across all these different sections of uh, of society where Islamophobia is prevalent. And now we're seeing more of it in, in the political space as well. And there are very sort of vivid and visceral connections, aren't there, to be drawn between hate crime. And incidentally, that I think there's often a danger that we talk about hate crime sort of in the abstract. So just to, just to alight on that point specifically, when you say hate crime, you mean people getting attacked in the street, yeah. right? 
You mean people's homes come in under attack? I'm talking about all sorts of things, starting from more mundane, perhaps you could argue, uh, in terms of uh, verbal assaults, all the way down to physical assaults. Pe- you know, people have had their kneecaps drilled and saying, you effing Muslim. Uh, you've had, we've had people, uh, terrorist attacks happen against Muslim institutions. Look, there, there are a number of these things that are happening on the street that people are being threatened with. And there are connections, as you see it very clearly, to be drawn between those things happening in people's everyday lives, as awful as they are, and what politicians in this instance like Lee Anderson say. So in other words, there is a causal relationship very often between one thing and the other. Very often we see that causal relationship. It's not necessarily always the case, but our leaders lead our society. Um, We've seen in the past direct connections. When Boris Johnson talked about um, Muslim women in in a certain way using the far-right language of letterboxes, we saw Muslim women on the street being attacked with letterboxes as the term used. There's lots of documented evidence to demonstrate that. Of course, it's not necessarily a causal relationship. You can't say it's always the case that someone who says this, this leads to hate crime or necessarily. But what we can say is that academic studies that show politicians and media reporting play a major role in in, in hate crime. And, and I think that's a problem. Uh, the Muslim Council of Britain, the organisation that you're centrally involved with, has written to the Conservative Party chair, Richard Holden, this week. Tell us what's in the letter. So in our letter, we wanted to reflect on the fact that Islamophobia is not just something that happens outside in the broader world. It is a specific problem in the Conservative Party. We saw with what happened with Lee Anderson, the words that he used. It's one thing to acknowledge and recognize that that's Islamophobia, which the Conservative Party till today seem to be unwilling to even admit. Call a spade a spade. They they aren't even willing to say... um, This is the reason why he was suspended from the party. And the reason that that's so important, and and we raise this straight centrally in the letter, is because if you don't understand or acknowledge a problem, how can you deal with it? And they have a broader problem because it is not just one person, Lee Anderson. Suella Braverman, just earlier, before what Lee Anderson said, in the Daily Telegraph, talked about Islamists taking over Britain. And you're thinking, like, these are clear conspiracy theories talking about Muslims taking over. These are these have echoes of far-right thinking within them. And you're thinking, how can what Lee Anderson said be okay when he actually was very clear and saying, Suella Braverman's gone too far. I'm, I don't believe that. I only believe that Islamists have taken over London. But Suella Braverman's not okay. Like, how, how does that how does that work? Um, and, and I think that, that what we're seeing is... Uh, a denialism from the very top of the party. And, and we we believe very strongly that this is not an idiosyncratic singular problem. We believe this is an institutional problem in the party. I mean, there's another point here. The Guardian has published a poll today of Conservative Party members that shows or suggests that 58% of Conservative Party members agree with the proposition that Islam poses a threat to the UK, which is double the, the proportion of the overall population. That's a pretty awful bit of context for it. But I wonder, does that surprise you? It unfortunately doesn't surprise me. The endemic nature of Islamophobia is not just within the top of the party. It's unfortunately throughout the party. The party will say, look, we did a review, the the, the Swaran Singh review, to look at the issue of, of racism within their party. But the problem was that review was only looking really at their complaints process. They haven't solved these problems. And that's my problem, right? Why not deal with this thing? And, and obviously the, the, the flip side of this is maybe they don't want to deal with this because they 
actually want to play into it. They think there's electoral advantage to it. I think that's wrong. I think they're they're going to lose on that because I think the 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 nasty party image is not a, an image that actually will work long term for them. Our previous guest, Gavin Barwell, who, as you probably know, used to be a Tory MP, he was Theresa May's chief of staff, who who is horrified by what Lee Anderson said and really does not like the sort of lack of clear conservative response to this as far as the leadership are concerned. He said that the awful sentiments that Lee Anderson expressed, I mean, perhaps got in the way of another issue, which is very separate, but kind of runs alongside it, which is about some elements of these regular protests outside Parliament about the Israeli attacks on Gaza, the intimidation of MPs, for example, and elements on those marches that are anti-Semitic and perhaps show public support for Hamas and so on. Where does that sit in your field of vision? Because I guess if you're if you're making an argument against people like Lee Anderson, that doesn't mean that you that me you don't acknowledge that there that there are those issues perhaps running alongside this somewhere. I think the the best way to think about this is it is very possible to vehemently criticize Israel without being anti-Semitic. You can say that Israel is engaged in genocide according to the International Court of Justice. You can use really strong language about Israel and have really vehement views without being racist about all Jews. It's really possible. It's, to be honest, what, what most of us would, would, would want to do in, 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 in our society. So if we're able to do that, why can't someone have a strong view about the protests? I personally will say quite clearly, I, I'm very happy to say quite clearly that the individuals on the protests who are breaking the law can and should have the book thrown at them. They should make sure that they're arrested if they're breaking the law. But that doesn't mean you slur the whole protest. It also doesn't mean you slur all Muslims. It doesn't mean that you infer and create racist stereotypes about Muslims. That's the difference. You can have criticism without racism. It's kind of what we do. Yeah, so in that sense, there's a a fundamental misreading of the politics around the Gaza marches on the part of people like Lee Anderson, isn't there? In as much as if you've got an issue with some elements on that march and the way that march is being policed, then why not just say that? Exactly right. And I think that's the point. What we're seeing sometimes is this conflating of different issues because they want to hide the underlying, you know, they want to hide the other area. So that they're talking about um, these protests and somehow saying that justifies or excuses uh, racism. It doesn't. Um, has the Labour Party got a problem with Islamophobia? I think the society as a whole and the Labour Party as well definitely do have problems with Islamophobia. If you look at the Labour Muslim Network, it put together a, a report um, a while ago where, where it laid out some of the problems in the party. It, it's identified how there were specific examples of many, many different people within the party who think that Muslims are treated unfairly. I don't think we should in any way excuse the Labour Party from Islamophobia. Islamophobia is a problem in society and therefore is a problem in, in the Labour Party as well. You mentioned the media earlier, so let's just talk about that. Um, in response to what Lee Anderson has said, you and I both know that there has been at least one newspaper front page, the Daily Express this week, expressing sympathy for his point of view. Support, really, saying he should be let back in the Conservative Party or words to that effect. Um and there are there are large elements of the British media that have a long history of portraying Muslims in a negative light. That's a huge part of this story, isn't it? Very much so. Unfortunately, many of the stories you see 
have really negative generalized views about Muslims, the idea that Muslims are potential terrorists, the, the imagery that's used, the headlines that are used. You know, we, we see this across the, the space. We've, we've done a report uh, from the Center for Media Monitoring where we've looked at this in significant detail. And we've identified a lot of these themes and these tropes about Muslims that get played into again and again. We've had hundreds of corrections from national newspapers of inaccuracies about Muslims. Forget about all the bias that's out there. So it is a core part of the problem, especially, again, more with the right wing, unfortunately, than it is with the left wing in terms of the paper coverage. And, and it's really problematic. You have some of the worst things like, you know, Muslims are silent on terrorism. You know, the idea that one in five Muslims have sympathy with jihadis. You know, these are these were front page stories. A, a Christian girl forced into Muslim foster care. All of these types of front page stories, which are just inaccurate lies were published in 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 a national in national newspapers. And you're thinking, how can this happen? Right? Have you have you seen um the parts of the media that usually get it wrong, at least occasionally get it right and signs of something better. Very much. Look, we, we engage with all media outlets who are willing to engage with us. And that includes a lot of right wing outlets. Things have got better. So one of the things I'd I, I talk about is the reporting of Muslims and terrorism. Prior to Christchurch and the, the massacre of uh, over 50, Mus 50 Muslims in, in a mosque in, in New Zealand, reporting generally was really quite bad. What we saw after Christchurch was a bit of a reflection. You know, senior journalists were saying publicly that, you know, maybe we got some of this wrong. Some of the assumptions we made about terrorism, maybe we got this wrong. And actually, we've seen some really positive and thoughtful coverage. If, uh, if there is a terrorist attack, now there's a bit more a wariness not to automatically assume it's a Muslim or assume it's an Islamist or, or, or whatever you might think. You know, there's a bit of thought behind it. While we're on this subject, there's an interesting question here. There have been, and presumably there will be in the future, terrorist acts committed by Muslim people, as much as there are terrorist acts committed by white fascists, right? So, so of course, clearly, we're not saying this is a in any way sort of unique to one religious or political category. As of when that happens, what's your view of the use of language? It's interesting that this word Islamist has suddenly intruded on the political conversation. What's your view of that and the way that that's routinely used in connection with terrorism? Is that okay? I prefer being very specific on what something is. So if it's a Daesh, if it's an ISIS-inspired attack, if it's an Al-Qaeda-inspired attack, if it's a specific attack because of a certain perspective, then let's talk about that, what the rationale is, and make it clear what it is. The problem we have here with certain terms is people infer different things from what they are. So, for example, if you take the term Islamist, because it's a, it's the key term of the, of the hour, Islamist theoretically means a belief in political Islam in some way. Now, you can have people who have that in a way that is non-violent, and there are ways who have those who are very violent about it. And 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 w w and there's a spectrum of views across that that landscape. But if you were to ask an average person on the street what they think an Islamist is, they'd always assume the latter in terms of the violent right, right. Um, terrorists are, are associated. But if you talk to people and how reporting happens, sometimes they will refer to someone who has a specific view, um, uh, a specific conservative view in Islam, and they call them an Islamist. And you're thinking, well. They're, they're very different. It sounds like, in a lot of what you said, despite everything that's happening and the fact that you see Islamophobia as running wide and deep and in many instances it's institutional, there is something of a sort of underlying optimism in what you're saying. Is that right? I think I have to be optimistic. I think I want to be optimistic. This is the country I live in. This is the country I love. This is the country I, I believe is going to be uh, uh, the place I'm going to be for the rest of my life. And I, 
I want to make sure that me, my my parents, my camp, my community, my, my family are all going to be in a in a positive place. So I'm, I'm I am optimistic. I think that um, as a society, we have the ability to turn things around. We've seen how attitudes towards racism have changed so significantly over the last few decades. I can see that happening towards uh, when it comes to Islamophobia as well. So I'm I'm hopeful. I think that with the right leadership, things can get better, and I'm I'm hopeful they will. Thank you for talking to us, Mike. Dan. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As I always say, if you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. I also want to mention a brilliant new Guardian podcast series that starts this week. It's called Black Box, and it's about artificial intelligence. Actually, it's about our relationship with AI, the ways in which it might help us, and the ways in which it may be very bad. Each episode follows a different story, from deep fakes to facial recognition technology. We think it's the guide to AI you've probably been waiting for. New episodes are out every Monday and Thursday, starting this Thursday. Subscribe to Black Box wherever you get your podcast. This episode of Politics Week the UK was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers. It's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today.